Uh, This morning, we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts, and so if you'll turn there. And while you're turning to chapter 1, I need to to make a correction uh, from a teaching I did two weeks ago. And uh, as I've told you, I said, if anybody ever catches me saying anything that's not biblical, or if there's anything in my life that's not appropriate, I expect you and, and I'm asking you to please come to me and let me know because I don't want to do anything at any time to ever stumble anyone. And uh, uh, a, a brother came up, uh, Gary Sparks came up to me last week and, and called me and said, you know, there's just one little thing that you said because I talked about the second incarnation, which just even the title of it sounds almost uh, uh, unusual, but the second incarnation being the coming of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity taking up residence in human flesh. And uh, as Paul was talking in Galatians chapter 3, uh, he's mentioning the fact that, that the promise that was given to Abraham of the blessing uh, had come to the Gentiles, that it was going to come to the Gentiles, and that the result of that, that blessing or the outcome of the blessing would be the reception of the Holy Spirit for the first time dwelling in the hearts of, of men and women who have received Christ. And, um, and I made a point that, that the blessing ultimately was the Holy Spirit, which that's where I was not right. The blessing was redemption by faith alone. But the result of that blessing was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think they're very closely tied together. But the blessing that God gave Abraham in, uh, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 was redemption by faith. The result of that blessing was now that we were appropriate vessels for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I wanted to bring that corrective word to, uh, to the teaching because I don't want to ever do anything or say anything that would even be closely or remotely unbiblical. And so I appreciate uh, Gary speaking to me about that. And, um, and hopefully you've benefited from that as well this morning. Let me uh, begin by reading our text this morning in Acts chapter 1. We're going to be completing the, the uh, chapter today as I begin in verse 12. And it's uh, re- relating to and regarding the replacement uh, apostolic ministry of Judas. And so I'll begin in verse 12 of chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, 
and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning, and we ask, God, that your blessing would be on it, Father. We know that your word says that as it goes out, it won't come back empty, but it's going to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And so, God, I'm excited about teaching it this morning. I'm excited about hearing it again myself. And, Father, I pray that, that, uh, that the net result of this time would be your praise, your honor, your glory, your pleasure, and our transformation as we put into practice the principles found in your word. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Sooner or later, one of the questions that, uh, that every believer asks is, how can I know the will of God? Usually it comes at a, at a critical decision-making point. A uh, person's you know, trying to decide whether they should marry this or that person. They're trying to decide, should they make this big move to a new state or a new location or a new job? They're trying to decide what to do with a child who's gone astray. Should they be tough or should they be uh, lenient? And so people enter into these, these critical crisis moments and they want to know what the will of God is. And fortunately, the Bible does give us uh, an idea of what the will of God is, very clear idea of how we can know God's will. And we're going to talk about th that today. But to be honest with you, the unbeliever and sometimes even believers kind of try to determine the will of God simply by trial and error. And it reminds me of a story of a businessman, very, very successful businessman, who had um, uh, an employee who was kind of an up-and-coming uh, manager in his business. And one day, this, uh, this younger manager came to the boss and said, you know, I'd just like to know what the secret of your success is. And uh, the businessman said, two words. And the apprentice said, well, well, sir, what are those two words? And he said, right decisions. And the apprentice said, well, how do you know how to make right decisions? And the, man, the, the business owner said, one word. And he said, what's the one word? And he says, experience. And the apprentice says, well, how do you get experience? And the owner said, wrong decisions. <laughs> and that's exactly how a lot of us kind of live our lives. You know, we, we go trial and error. But I would suggest to you that that's not a very efficient way to live when many decisions that we make in life, we only get to make once. For instance, our marriage relationship. And... Um, so I, I want to encourage you today that as we look through this text, we're finding the disciples making what, what could have been and should have been and might have been a very critical, crucial decision for the apostolic replacement of Judas, who was lost, as the scripture teaches. And, uh, and I believe that, I'm going I'm to show my cards right at the beginning here, I don't think they got it right. But that's my opinion. Other people have different opinions on this text. Uh, but I don't believe they got it right. But as we go along through this text, I think we're going to learn some things that will help us to make really godly biblical decisions. And what I want to share with you is the good news is we don't have to be the apprentice that's trying to figure life out by trial and error. But we can be those who, under the tutelage of God and the Word of God and the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, can make the right decisions every time if we're willing to do it God's way. And so by the time we're done, I'm praying that God would, would bless you. I know many of you are in a place of decision-making right now. You've got things on your mind. What are you going to do in this situation? How should you respond in this situation? What do you do when, you, when you're disappointed and when things don't go right? What decision should guard your heart and guide your heart at that moment? And so most of us are in some place of decision-making. And, uh, and so I'm excited to be able to share the message with you because I believe it's going to be very helpful in helping you make decisions that don't lead to heartache, but lead really to the glory of God and to your blessing. So the text begins in verse 12 with the disciples returning to Jerusalem, which the Bible says was a Sabbath day's walk 
from the city. And um, remember, they're on the Mount of Olives. The ascension has taken place. Jesus has told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so they, in obedience to the word of God, which is one of the key things we're gonna be talking about, obedience to the word, they obey and they go back and they do exactly what Jesus said. By the way, we've talked about this so frequently. This is the distinguishing characteristic of someone that's truly born again. It's not whether they prayed the sinner's prayer because it's not in the Bible. It's whether a man or woman obeys what God has said. And so in obedience, they return. Just an interesting side note here is that um, a Sabbath day's journey was about a thousand yards. That's as far as you could go. It's about three quarters of a mile or a little bit more. How did they come up with this? Well, it came from Joshua chapter three, verse four. In that text, you'll find the, the story about the tabernacle. The tabernacle couldn't be... Uh, anywhere in the vicinity of the people. They couldn't pitch their tents any closer than a thousand yards to the tabernacle. And so on the Sabbath, they had to journey in order to worship. And so that became kind of the, the standard for a Sabbath day's walk. And anything more than that was considered work and was inappropriate on the Sabbath. And so they, they walked about three quarters of a mile from the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been to Israel, it's another hillside through the valley and into Jerusalem in obedience to God. And they went to the upper room now, we're not told what upper room this is, but we know from the text that it accommodated 120 people. So this wasn't your average house. Uh, an average house in Jerusalem at the time could hold just a handful of people, very tight quarters, uh, a lot of people sleeping in the same rooms, uh, and, and that was the lifestyle there. So quite likely, although we don't know with any certainty, this may have been the very same room where Jesus met the disciples for his upper room discourse and where he had communion, because that also was a large room. And so very possibly they had a lease on this place and, uh, and it carried right on through this 40-day um, uh, experience with Jesus where he's teaching on the kingdom of God. And now they're in this 10-day window after the ascension of Christ before uh, the Holy Spirit would come. The people that were present were told in the text were all the disciples except Judas, the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and also Jesus' brothers, uh, which presents a real uh, problem for the teaching that Mary was a virgin in perpetuity uh, because we find repeatedly in the Bible that Jesus' brothers uh, uh, were all, often described in the, in the uh, writings of the Gospels in Matthew 13, 55 and John 7, 5 as those that didn't believe in Jesus. So they were presented as people who were actually uh, opposing the teachings of Christ because they didn't believe that their brother was actually who he claimed to be, be the Messiah. But now, they're in the upper room. Obviously, post-resurrection, their minds have been changed and now they believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God and they've come to faith and belief in Jesus as well. And we're told in all, there are 120 people in this room. So they joined together in constant prayer. That's what they did with their time. We know they did this for 10 days. Constant means persevering prayer. They were just continuing to pray. It reminds me of Paul's writings in Ephesians 6, 18, where he says, pray in the spirit on all occasions at all times with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And so that's exactly what these believers were doing even before Paul was on the scene, even before these writings, is that they found themselves during that 10-day window seeking God and crying out to God and worshiping and praying. Now the, now the mystery, of course, is what were they praying? Well, we don't really know. But I think there are at least two things that are logical prayers that they would have been lifting up to God. Number one, they would have been praying for the kingdom of God to come. 
Now, Jesus has already told them that the kingdom was already in them, but there was also the dimension that the disciples wanted to see the kingdom of God infiltrate the world. They probably were also praying for the dissemination of the gospel because that was their great commission, to make disciples. The thing I like about it is that we don't find them strategizing. Uh, you know, Peter doesn't get the right board out and st start drawing, you know, flow, uh, uh, flow chart uh, categories for management of the 12 disciples and who's going to go to what cities and how are they going to get from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Nobody wants to go to Samaria. Any, any volunteers? I mean, I can hear the, the meeting happening. But that's not what they're doing. They're praying. And I believe they're also praying for the coming Holy Spirit. They don't even know what that means. They have no idea what that means. And they're just saying, Lord, we don't know what this means, but we're praying. I don't know about you, but there are many things in my life that I just have a little bit of information on, and I don't even really know what to do. And the temptation is, is to start flowcharting. It's to start strategizing. It's to start planning. It's to start writing down the pros and cons of, of a decision. I would suggest to you that that's the wrong place to start when you have limited information. The right place to start is prayer. The right place to start is to seek God. And I don't know what it is about us. It must be our fallen nature. We're born again. We have a new nature, a new spirit living in us, but we are still tempted to do almost anything but be on our knees and pray for any length of time. I'm not saying we don't shoot up quick prayers and say, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And then we get busy working the angles and we spend a whole day or two days or three days grappling and, and charting and you know, punching a calculator, trying to figure out this decision. But these people spent time just praying. And I, I guarantee you that went against their nature, just knowing these guys and how they operated. It went against their nature to do it, but it's, it's all they had to do. And so they come to God in constant prayer, seeking the Lord. Now, up until this point, the disciples have done three things that are critical to making godly biblical decisions. Number one is they were already in obedience to what God had revealed thus far. They went to Jerusalem. That's all they had, but they did what God told them to do. The second thing is that they were in fellowship with the believers. And that's what Hebrews 10.25 says. Don't forsake fellowshipping among yourselves as believers, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the disciples thought the day was approaching. They really thought they were right on the doorstep of the second coming of Christ. And they were not about to neglect fellowshipping with the saints. And so we find the second thing for a good decision. If you want to have a good decision, then, then be in, in obedience to the scripture about fellowshipping in the body of Christ and using your gifts and being a blessing. And the third thing that they were doing right is they were in prayer. You know, I, I, honestly, um, there are many church leadership meetings and denominational group meetings and pastors' conferences where they will teach and strategize for four and five days at a stretch and they won't pray. And I don't understand that. I'm thinking, how can that possibly be? Is that we're strategizing and using our own, you know, sanctified common sense. There's nothing wrong with that, but, but leadership needs to pray. We need to be on our face before God corporately seeking the Lord, whether it's our church or denomination or a group of pastors on the island or whatever it is. We need to spend the bulk of our time crying out to God for his plan. And, uh, and then once he gives us direction to act on that in obedience. And so the disciples are doing some things right here, but we're about to take a significant step into a transition that I think 
uh, has really resulted in a 2,000-year argument about the apostolic calling of who the 12th apostle would be. And so we find that Peter, uh, in verse 15, stands up, and I love the word in, in the Greek, it's anistemi, and it means a literal standing up or figuratively, and I think it's both. Literally, he physically stood up, but I think it's also figuratively that he stood up. Spiritually, for the first time, Peter stands up in a godly way and begins to give godly leadership. And, and that's significant because this guy had failed. Anybody here failed spiritually? And you just don't ever want to stand up again? Well, Peter stood up again. Jesus told him before he betrayed him, he said, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Peter. And after you come back, I want you to strengthen the brothers. And so when this new occasion arose after the resurrection of Christ, he didn't run, he didn't hide, and he didn't lie. But he stood up and he gave leadership to these 120 followers of Christ. And he said, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the spirit spoke long ago through David. I love this. All of Peter's ministry life up until this point was about Peter's ideas and Peter's thoughts. This is the first occasion where Peter says, the word of God says thus and so. And it, this is a fulfillment of God's word. This is real leadership because it very easily could have been, I'm thinking what it would be like to be in that room. And I, I can think that they might be grumbling about Judas. He's not there and they're thinking along the lines of how this all unfolded in the resurrection of Christ and some people are still rehearsing the, 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 the traitor Judas and his actions. And they're thinking, man, that guy goofed everything up. Man, how could he do this? Look at what's happened. I mean, it's complete. It must have changed everything in God's plan. And God must be doing a real work trying to make adjustments here. What are we gonna do? How can we get God's plan back on track after this betrayal of Judas? But Peter says the scripture had to be fulfilled. I love this because he's quoting God's word, no longer using his own words, but now he's going to God's word and he's encouraging the saints. And in essence, he's saying, not to worry, friends. This isn't some aberration. This isn't some, you know, uh, effort of the enemy that has thrown God off, off kilter, off center. This, was ha this happened in response to the scriptures that had to be fulfilled in this regard re regarding the betrayal of Judas. Even Jesus himself knew those scriptures and quoted them to the disciples and said, one of you will betray me. And to give you an idea of how, how slick and, and um, one of the guys Judas was is that none of the disciples knew it was Judas. It wasn't like the guy that like had, you know, uh, a scarlet letter on his forehead and everybody said, it must be you, you know, or you. No, it wasn't like that. They were all saying, is it me? I, don't, I can't see any of these other guys. I know I have maybe the capacity to betray you. Jesus, is it me? Please say it's not me. But it ended up being Judas. And so Peter gets up and says, brothers, don't worry about what appears to be a setback because these things had to be fulfilled. Why do I concentrate on that for a few moments? For the very simple reason that there are many things in our lives that happen that we think are, are some sort of an aberration, some sort of a significant interruption to the plan of God. In other words, the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? That's in essence what they're, what they're asking and what Peter's answering. And, and God answers that for the believer in Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And in essence, that's Peter's message to the 120 in the upper room. And now that message thousands of years later transfers to us. Some of you have gone through some difficult things 
And you're thinking to yourself, where is God? How could God let this happen? Why doesn't God answer? Why doesn't God respond? And all I can tell you is that 2,000 years ago, they faced the same question and a very bold and courageous and transformed man named Peter stood up and he went back to the word of God and he said not to worry. God is fulfilling his destiny, not only in his ministry, but also in the ministry of those that are called according to his purpose and who love him. And so I'm encouraging you, uh, those of you that are, are struggling today and have something happening in your life, and some of you may be struggling for months or years, and you've lost heart and you feel discouraged in your own walk with God, what I want to share with you is that nothing is ever wasted with God. Nothing is ever lost with God. And nothing can derail the purposes of God in your life. And so you have to come to a point where you recognize the sovereignty of God even in the heartaches and even in the disappointments in life and continue to put your confidence and trust in God. And so Peter stands up and gives this word of fulfillment concerning Judas. And then we have a description of Judas. And I just want to touch on this briefly in verses 16 through 19. Uh, Luke says that he served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was also one of the 12 disciples. It gets closer and closer to the, to the group. And then it says he shared in their ministry. This is painful. As Peter is sharing these things, it's, it's, it's touching the heart of the camaraderie of these 12 men. You know, David went through similar things. He was betrayed by very close people to him in ministry and in his rule and reign over Israel. He says this in Psalm 55, verse 12. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked in the throng at the house of God. And so David, so many years earlier, is communicating the same things, that same heartache that happens. And... Um, you know, the fact is, is if you're involved in ministry in particular, but if you're just living and breathing, you are going to be betrayed and you will be hurt by some of those that are closest to you. In some cases, it's your own children. In some cases, it's your own family, your parents. In some cases, it's friends, even within the church that, you, that you're wounded by. And the thing I want to share with you, I've shared this before, is again, Peter's perspective is not vengeful, is not arrogant, is not uh, condemning, but he simply commits himself to the sovereignty of God and saying, you know what, God, I don't understand all these things, but here I am. I want to do your will. I want to honor you. And I've shared this with you before, but I've, I've experienced wounds. Any pastor does in ministry. Anybody in ministry experiences experience this kind of wounding. And what God has really shown me is that I am indebted to people that, that I have broken relationship with because that, that relationship has put me on my knees before God like very few things do. And it puts me in a place where I'm crying out to God and saying, God, redeem, restore, reconcile. What do, what do I need to do? What can we do? And so those relationships have actually done more for me than almost anything else in helping to advance me in my walk with God. Uh, on occasion, people that don't even like me. I'm thinking, what, what's not to like? You know, I'm a friendly guy. But, you know, sometimes I rub people the wrong way or I get things wrong or I say something offensive and, you know, uh, because I'm human, I, I'm going to offend. And, and I think because I'm a pastor, there's a heightened expectation and when something I say is, is maybe not nearly as offensive as something else, but because of my role and the, the trust that people have in me, it stings all the more. And so 
uh, what I've had to do is I've just had to come to God and say, God, you know, Lord, I don't want to ever hurt anyone. I don't ever want to be anything but a blessing to, to people. But sometimes things happen. But even for myself, I have to commit that to the sovereignty of God and not saying, thus fulfills the word of God when that happens. No, but to recognize that, you know, I have to submit to the sovereignty of God. And it just makes me that much more thankful for the people that, that, uh, that have wounded me and that I've wounded because it gives me a chance to really pray for them because honestly, more than anyone else in my life, it's those relationships that have drawn me close to God. And so I have a debt even to those that don't like me. And the result is that I pray blessing on them uh, because uh, uh, they've, they've contributed so significantly to my own personal growth, uh, even though the means of, of that growth were, would not be what I would plan or, or want, or I'm sure even what they would want either. And so you know, Luke is describing Peter's description of this close, intimate companion in ministry and this betrayal that took place and how he took uh, the money that he was given by the, by the uh, spiritual leaders in Jerusalem at the time and he bought a field, uh, or actually they bought a field with it because Judas, of course, came back and he wasn't repentant in a biblical way, but he felt badly about betraying innocent blood and he threw the, the 30 pieces of silver on the ground and they bought a field uh, uh, for foreigners who had died with that money. And then we're told a little bit more information that he fell headlong and his, uh, he burst open, which is very graphic. I mean, this is definitely a doctor writing uh, because Matthew, who's not a doctor, just says he hung himself. And actually some people have taken that text and, and used that as a, a proof text for the contradictions in scripture, which is not accurate because uh, both can be true at the same time, that Judas hung himself, and oftentimes when people hung themselves, they were considered accursed and no one would even touch them, and uh, quite likely he hung there for some time, and uh, for want of a better description, he rotted there and just decayed and fell off and burst open when he hit the ground, or a tr the tree limb broke and he burst open. But nonetheless, he did hung, hang himself and he did burst open, and, uh, and it was gruesome enough that they called this field the field of blood, uh, not only because it was bought with blood money, but because Judas shed his blood at that location. In verse 20, Peter goes on and says, it's written that uh, may his place be deserted and may another take his place of leadership, which is a quote from Psalm 109, verse 8. Now, I want to take just a minute and talk about why this leadership uh, filling this vacuum was so important to Peter. Because prophetically, in order for the kingdom of God to come, both in the Old Testament and the, in the later writings of, of John, uh, the apostle who wrote in Revelation 21 about this, the kingdom of God was going to be ruled and reigned by 24 elders, 24, uh, 12 of which would be the Old Testament. Uh, many people believe the 12 rulers of the tribes of Israel and the New Testament representing the 12 apostles and that there would be 12 pillars in the kingdom of heaven inscribed with the apostles' names on those 12 pillars. So remember Jesus, his whole 40 days that he's doing ministry after his resurrection is teaching on nothing else except the kingdom of God and the coming kingdom. And so Peter is thinking, wow, the kingdom of God is coming, but we know prophetically and we also, uh, we ourselves as New Testament Christians know in, in uh, Revelation 21, 14, that there are 12 foundations with 12 pillars with the 12 apostles' names on them. And if all that's gonna happen, then we have to fulfill this vacancy and, and, uh, and appoint someone, otherwise Jesus won't come back. Are you beginning to follow the train of thought why Peter seems so pressed for time? to get this done? Because he's thinking Jesus is coming back any moment and unless we've get the, got this position filled, Jesus will not return. 
Wouldn't it be amazing if we knew what it would take for Jesus to return? You know, the Bible actually tells us. He says, when the last person who's appointed for eternal life receives Christ, then the end will come. So actually, the Bible teaches that we can do something about it. And that's simply share our faith with people because who knows? You might be the person today who communicates the gospel to the very last person who receives Christ and then the end will come. That's what the Bible teaches. So Peter feels some sense of, of urgency about getting this vacancy filled. And so he says, we must choose one of the men among us who has these three characteristics in verse 21 through 22. They need to be somebody who's been with us the whole time. They need to be a witness of Jesus' ministry from John's baptism to Jesus' ascension. And he needs to be a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Now the question is, how did he come up with these qualifications? We have no indication in the word of God that these were divinely inspired. We have no indication that, uh, that the Holy Spirit was involved in this or that they got this from the Bible, although I have to say that in all but the last of the qualifications, Jesus said, this is what you need to do as my, my disciples. You need to have been there. You need to tell them everything that's happened. You need to be a witness of my ministry. But in the last part of the text, um, uh, being a witness of Jesus' resurrection, uh, Peter, in fact, in his first message that we're going to study next week, uh, said, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to this fact. So these three things that he brings up seem to be kind of like sanctified common sense qualifications. And so we find that, uh, that we have 120 people, in essence, who are qualified because they were all a part of Jesus' ministry and all had seen the resurrected Lord. But my question is, sanctified common sense enough? And I would say, no, it's not enough. If you're going to make biblical decisions, sanctified common sense is not enough uh, by itself. And we're going to see why here in a moment, because there is a very significant transition that takes place in verse 23. Because... Um, Peter stands up and he proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas and also Matthias. If there is a flaw in Peter's decision-making model, this is where it occurs. Why do I say that? Because out of 120 candidates, Peter makes what appears to be a, a solo decision that all but two are disqualified and that only two should be the two that are selected. In essence, it's like uh, out, of, out of the whole world, if you're thinking about getting married and you're a guy and you say, okay, uh, from uh, this girl over here and this girl over here, Lord, out of all the girls in the world, these two, which one do you want me to have? Well, it may be that, that neither one of those are appropriate choices. Maybe this one's not even a believer and maybe this one is not a faithful woman, but it's like you give God two choices. In essence, that's what Peter did. He had the, the, the right motive. The motive was right. The plan, I think, was right to select someone. I think we're going to find that that actually happened anyway. But the timing was bad. The timing was wrong. And I think that happens to us sometimes because we sense this urgency. And I was talking to a friend this week who has uh, a plan to buy property here on Kauai. And, uh, and I know quite a bit about that, and I'm, that seems to be an area that God has gifted me in, and so I was counseling this, this brother. And, and he had this urgency because the, the message from the owner was, I got five people in line. If you don't give me a down payment today, you're out. But there were some things that were, about, that were wrong about the property that he wouldn't allow contingencies for, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but, but I had some red flags on it right away. 
because of the way this whole thing was being pitched. But this brother felt so much pressure that he had to make a decision now or he would lose everything. Are you following? No, none of you have ever had that experience, right? Where you felt like you had to make a decision like immediately or the sky would fall. Whenever that happens, by the way, this is the rule of thumb, is don't make any decisions. Because whenever you're under that kind of pressure, you are prone to make a wrong and an ungodly decision that oftentimes may have long, lifelong consequences. And so we find that Peter was under pressure to make this decision. And so he, he what I believe did was got ahead of God and eliminated all the people that he thought were not the right people and chose two people that he really liked that he thought from an external perspective would be good choices to fulfill that role. Probably guys he got along with, probably guys that he was friends with, probably guys that he related to. And that's a dangerous thing. Do you remember in, in 1 Samuel when Samuel was called by God to select a son from Jesse's family to be king of Israel? And Jesse paraded all these good big strapping leadership type guys out in front of, of Samuel. And, and Samuel said, oh, this must be the one. Look at him. And the Lord said, no, that's not my choice. He goes through all his sons, you know the story, until there aren't any sons left. And, and Samuel says to Jesse, Jesse, is that it? You got anybody else? None of these are the son. And God said it was from your family. And Jesse said, well, I got this kind of scrubby little kid out in the field. He's faithful. He's not really all that much to look at, but the kid's faithful and he's a hard worker. Maybe, uh, you know, can somebody go get David? And so they bring in the least likely choice and God says, this is the one. And, and God gives Samuel this message. He said, man looks on the outward, but I look at the heart. And so Peter, he can't look at the heart. He can't get into the heart of a man in a choice like that. So he simply is looking at the external and he makes a decision, eliminating all but two choices and said, God, you have one of two choices. You know, sometimes that's helpful. Uh, have you ever t taken your kid to a, to a candy store and uh, you go into 7-Eleven into and there's a whole row of stuff and they're in there for like 15 minutes and you're like, okay, come on. I can't decide, Dad. There's so many things to choose from. So sometimes I'll just go in and I'll say, you can either have that or that. Which one do you want? You know, because I know they like them both and they'll say, okay, I'll take that. And then we're out of there in about 30 seconds. But you see, God doesn't need that kind of elimination of the process. He needs to have the capacity to, to, to choose from anyone that he wants at any time that he wants to make that choice. So this is where I think Peter went wrong, is that he eliminated potential candidates. And I would suggest to you that the candidate that God eventually selected wasn't even in that upper room at the time that Peter made this decision. So they made this decision and then they prayed, verse 24, a little backwards. They should have prayed first and then made a decision if God gave them one. But they prayed, God, show us which one of these two that we've given you an option between, which one you want to take over Judah's place where, uh, because he has left his place to go where he belongs. By the way, I think that that's about the nicest way I've ever heard of somebody going to hell in my life, to go to the place he belongs. You know, that's like saying, she passed away. You know, uh, we're gonna send Judas to where he belongs. Now, we know a lot about Judas from the Bible, uh, he's described in less than favorable terms as the betrayer in Matthew 10, 4, a traitor, Luke 6, 16, a devil by Jesus in Luke 6, 70. That's not a very nice thing to say about somebody. And one doomed to destruction in John 17, 2. And so there was this need for this replacement. And so they do the second thing that in retrospect, I think even the disciples recognized as a wrong thing to do as they cast lots in verse 26. It wasn't clear to them which one, after prayer, 
God was leading them to. And I think the reason was is that God wasn't blessing this process. Now, I'm speculating, so I want you to be very clear on this. There are people that have a different opinion that believe that Matthias was the correct choice and that Paul was a disciple to the Gentiles and not the Jews. But my perspective, my understanding, is that uh, they cast lots because the casting of lots often occurred when God didn't speak. So when God doesn't speak and, and you need a decision, then you cast lots and hope that through the lots, which is like the equivalent of flipping a coin, uh, you know, we're going to get a decision made. And, uh, and it does seem that in the Bible that there are times when God seems to sanction the casting of lots, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, we find in, in uh, Proverbs 16.33 that it says, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Interestingly, Casting lots is mentioned 70 times in the Old Testament. It's used by unbelievers. It's used by believers. It's used for the distribution of the land to Israel. It's used in a variety of ways. But it's only mentioned seven times in the New Testament. And do you know when the last time the casting of lots is ever mentioned in the New Testament? Right here in Acts chapter 1 on this occasion. It's never again mentioned as a viable means for discerning the will of God. Why would that be? I think because in retrospect, the disciples didn't get it right. And I believe they probably recognized that after the fact and said, look, I'm not so sure that casting lots is really what we need to be doing now that we have God's spirit living in us who wants to guide and lead us and give us instructions. But they cast the lot and it fell to Matthias and he was added to the 11 apostles. The, 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 uh, the big debate is this. Was Matthias God's choice? was Matthias, God's choice to fill that apostolic role of Judas. Well, the position of those that believe he is say that he was the right man using the right methods at the right time. Well, that's possible, but again, there, there are several things that, that seem to mitigate against that. Number one is that Matthias is never, ever mentioned again in the Bible. He just virtually disappears from Scripture. Number two is the method by which he was chosen is never ever used again by anyone in the church that we know of. There are many reasons in addition to that that, that indicate that Matthias was not the right choice. Now, reasons why I believe that it was Paul was because the book of Acts repeatedly affirms that Paul was an apostle. In fact, uh, the, the better balance of the entire book is about Paul the apostle. Another reason is that 14 of the epistles were written by the Apostle Paul and nine of those epistles, he presents a defense for himself for his apostolic ministry before God. Why would he need to pre present a defense for himself nine times out of 14? Well, I think because the church was still confused. They're thinking, well, I thought Matthias was the guy. Who is, who is Paul? And so Paul has to repeatedly present a defense for himself. The, another reason why I believe that Paul was God's choice is that he actually fulfilled the qualifications that Peter pronounced in this text. He did all the things that was required except one, and that was that he was not an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. That is until the Damascus Road experience, and he describes himself one born out of season, but yet a witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so he fulfills all of those qualifications. So I personally... And this, again, is an opinion, so it's not an essential doctrine. It's not really all that important, to be honest with you. But it is a point of debate theologically for people about who this replacement apostle was. And I believe the apostle that God chose wasn't in that upper room at the time, which, if nothing else, teaches us this. 
is that sometimes the most important thing we can do in discerning the will of God is to wait if we don't have a clear answer. And I know how hard that is to wait. It's so hard to wait when you've got an agenda and you've got an opinion and you've got a preferable outcome and you begin to push. Have you ever done that? Or, God, whatever you want, but I really want this one. God, I'm just com committing this to you completely, but I'm, I'm, like, I'm right here, over there, over here. Look over here. You know, we're, we're like a cheerleading section for our position and what we want God to do. But God, whatever you want, I just want to serve you. And, you know, whatever you want is okay. Just don't make me do this. I want this one over here, God. Just want, you know, intercede for me, Holy Spirit. Be on my side. You know, come on, Jesus. Pump those prayers, you know. So sometimes we get into that mode, and I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating to make a point, but we have an opinion. And so it's very difficult to let go of that desire and to truly, simply wait. And that's where I think the disciples made their second mistake. The first being is they, they eliminated potential candidates before even praying and gave God a choice of two, none of whom, neither of whom I believe were God's choice. And, and the second thing was, was they didn't wait. And instead, because they didn't hear from God on what to do and didn't have a peace in their hearts, they cast lots, which was an Old Testament method for coming to a quick decision on things that they weren't sure about what to do. And they should have waited. And in God's timing, God would have raised up, I believe, the proper and right apostle. So that brings me to um, the last points that I want to make here today. And, and it's simply this. How can we make good decisions? How can we learn from what we've studied here um, I think there's some things that we can learn not to do and some things that we can learn that they did do right that we can benefit from. But I'm going to give you seven quick points on how you can make biblical and godly decisions without having to live a life of trial and error and really live with some serious consequences when you make decisions. Uh, sometimes it can be uh, uh, very significant decisions in life and even some of the small ones that we don't think are important can turn out to be tragic and so here are seven things that I want to go over briefly. Number one, if you want to make God-honoring God uh, decisions and be in the will of God, you must live a life of absolute surrender to God. That's the starting point. Most times when people teach on, on uh, knowing God's will, nobody starts out with this. But it's essential, and I'll tell you why. Because the scripture says it's essential. In Romans 12:1, it says, Paul speaking, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then he goes on to say, and do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind uh, so that you may know the will of God, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So God wants us to know his will, but it comes and begins when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. How do we do that? Well, number one, you have to be born again. God doesn't give his will and communicate his will to people who haven't yet received the most basic fundamental gift that God has to offer, and that's eternal life. The second thing is you've got to maintain a first love relationship with God. If, if you're a carnal Christian, if, you don't, if you're not in the word and you know, you're just kind of living your life for yourself and then a, an important decision comes up and you're crying out to God and, and you want to get wisdom from God, you're starting at the wrong place. The first place you need to start is repentance and rest before God and returning to your first love. Be filled, led by, and keep in step with the Holy Spirit of God. These are essential things to being a living sacrifice. And then you've got to make God's glory your number one priority, which will free you from the agenda that you might have. So God, I don't have an agenda anymore. I'm dead. You've bought me at a price. 
My job is to glorify you with everything that I have. So God, even though I have a preference here, I don't mind telling you right up front, I'd like to go this direction. My number one desire above everything else is that your name and your glory and your praise would be magnified by this decision. So we need to be surrendered to the Lord. The second thing is that we need to be obedient to what God has already revealed. John 14, 21 says that whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And listen to this. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and now carefully listen and will show myself to him. In the Greek, it means to reveal. It's to, it's to share further information, a deeper knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. So for those who are already walking in obedience, he's delighted to share more information. But if you are already walking in disobedience to what you already know clearly to be God's will, then God's gonna say, Get the, get the first part right first and then I'll give you further information. It's like having a, a, a math class and, uh, and a, a child wants to learn trigonometry. They're all excited because it means that they can be a NASA astronaut, you know, and they need trigonometry to be a, an, a, an astronaut. I want to learn trigonometry. And the teacher says, well, do you know your, your, your times tables? Well, not really, but I, wanna be, I, I need trigonometry. No, you've got to go back and you've got to do your times tables. Let's start there because you'll never be able to do this properly until you know the basics. And so God's message to us is that be obedient in the things you already know if you expect to hear the voice of God and to have clear direction. The third thing is know what God's word says related to that decision or situation. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.15 that we need to be doing our best to present ourselves before God as workmen, competent workmen who know God's word and are not ashamed and handle accurately the word of God. And Part of handling the word of God accurately is knowing what it says about a particular decision. Let me give you an example. You're trying to figure out who to marry. And so you got this, this one guy. Let's say it's a girl that's making the decision. This guy's, man, this guy, he's got a job, he's got a car, he's got a house, and, and he kind of believes in God a little bit. He doesn't go to church, but he loves to worship in the ocean on Sunday mornings, and, and he has this kind of neat relationship with the Lord that seems very free, but, you know, I think I can get him to come to church. And I got this other guy, you know, who's a, who's a believer, and, uh, and he's, he's kind of like... Uh, He's been a Christian before. He knows the Bible better than I do, but he doesn't like the church anymore because of the hypocrites. Oh, Lord, which one should I take, you know? Uh, and maybe there's even a third choice who's not a believer who we might be able to win to Christ. And he seems like he's got so much potential if he could just harness it, if God could harness that man's heart for Christ. And right away, we know that the Bible speaks to all of these things. The Bible's so clear. Number one, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That eliminates anybody who's an unbeliever, who's not just somebody that, uh, that says they are a believer, but somebody who's walking the Christian life in obedience to God. If, ladies, if you're looking for a husband, men, if you're looking for a wife, you need to be looking for somebody who's already investing and involved and full throttle in ministry. Don't go for somebody who's just half-hearted for the Lord and you have to drag to church and they're willing to come if you're willing to date them. No. The Bible speaks to that. The Bible says a great deal about finances and business relationships and all kinds of things, family relationships, how to recon reconcile broken relationships. So find out what the Bible says about that and be in agreement with that. And when you're in agreement with the word, you're going to be blessed by God because you're going to be applying the scriptures appropriately to that situation and benefiting from that wisdom. And by the way, uh, you don't have to come and ask anybody about, you know, should I leave my wife? The Bible answers that question. 
Should, do I really have to pay my taxes to the IRS, the, that sleazy organization? You know, uh, we don't even have taxes in the, in the Constitution. Why, you know, I, I've heard all that a hundred times, you know, why we don't have to pay taxes, why a businessman shouldn't have to pay GET tax, why we can't because we can't afford to do it on the island. I've heard all those things. I know how difficult it is to do business anywhere, but particularly uh, in the islands. But the point is, is that we don't have to pray about those things because God has already told us clearly how we're to conduct ourselves. The fourth thing is to pray fast and wait for God's guidance. And I've already talked about this, but Psalm 37, seven says it beautifully. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still. But this thing that I mentioned just briefly, fasting is, is pretty much a lost art within evangelical Christianity, in particular in the United States. Sometimes I'll just ask people who have chronic problems with their, with their spouse or with their marriage or in a business situation or they seem to be chronically in debt or chronically in conflict with people all over the place. And, and I'll ask him, I said, you know, have you fasted about this? Have you gone? Because, it, you know, I've talked to you about this and we've, we've counseled in this way and, and I think I'm giving you biblical counsel, but when was the last time you, you took a day or two and you simply fasted with your spouse? and cried out to God. You just took two days off from work and you did nothing but go to a, to a, 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 a getaway, you know, some cabin at Cocaine or whatever, and you just got on your face before God and you cried out to him for a day. You know, I've never had a couple do that. I've never had a couple say to me, you know, funny that you mentioned that. We just did that yesterday. I've never had that. I, I find it so interesting that when it comes to these critical issues of life, that so few people within the church, and I'm not casting stones at all, I'm saying I, I, for myself too, why is it that we don't apply the very things that the New Testament church applied and that the Old Testament saints applied? Is that they prayed and they sought God and they fasted and they waited. And what we do is we shoot up a quick prayer, put our name on a, on a big chain letter email list to people all over the country who we want to pray for us, and then we're on the phone with hundreds of people, talking to all kinds of people, resourcing counselors, trying to do this, trying to do that, griping, complaining about our situation to anybody that will listen, but we won't pray for any lengthy period of time, and we certainly won't fast. That's, you mean go without a meal? I'll get hungry. But that's what the New Testament saints did. And I, I believe if you really want God's will, that you need to be a person that's willing to, to apply the principles that Jesus laid out. And he fasted frequently. The fifth thing is seek out godly counsel uh, from other believers. And if, if you're following along in your notes, you'll notice I left godly blank because there's all kinds of Christian counseling that's not godly. Just because a counselor puts on their placard in front of their office, Christian counselor, doesn't mean that it's Christian counseling. They may be a Christian, but that doesn't mean their counseling is Christian. They might be a very secular counselor using secular methodology, and just because they go to church, they call themselves a Christian counselor. Make sure the counseling you're getting is biblical. Please, please don't go to somebody who will support what your preconceived notion is of what you want already, and you already know it's wrong, and you go to them because you know that they're carnal, and you know that they're going to say, you know what, that guy's a snake. Divorce him. Are you following me? So go to someone who's godly and get godly Christian counsel. The Bible supports that in the book of Proverbs. Sixthly, consider the circumstances. Oftentimes God will reveal to you his will just in circumstances. For instance, we're talking about housing a few minutes ago. Housing has gone out of the ceiling here. It's just crazy. You can't buy a house for less than $400,000 and it's a total fixer-upper here right now. And so if somebody comes to me and says, you know, Bob, I'm really praying. I don't know what to do. 
Well, what's the problem? Well, we've got a house that we want to put an offer in on, and it's $500,000, but I only qualified for $250,000 of, of uh, mortgage. And I will say, well, decision made. The circumstances indicate that that's not going to happen unless God does something miraculous. So sometimes our circumstances can simply be an indicator one way or another what God is doing. They certainly aren't everything, though, because sometimes God calls us to do things that are humanly impossible, don't make any sense. But they are a factor, and they help significantly. The seventh thing is expect God's confirming peace. I like in Acts 15 when the disciples are discussing what to do with these new Gentile disciples and if they should put any restrictions on them regarding uh, meat sacrifice to idols and a variety of other things. And, and they start out saying, it seemed good to, to the Holy Spirit and to us. You see, they changed from making a decision in advance and they said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and boy, we liked what he decided. We felt good about it too. And there was this peace, this inner peace that happened at the moment that they made the decision, and even after the decision was made, there's peace. So when you make a godly decision, the result of that should be peace at the time. I'm not saying it's an easy decision, but you have a confirming peace that you're making the right decision at the right time. Having made that decision, more, than, more often than not, that peace will continue on even if the consequences of your decision don't turn out exactly how you would have wanted them to. Because you look back on it and you say, you know what, as nearly as I understood God's will, we followed it to the T. We did everything that we could to receive his presence and his will. And with the information we had, with the timing God gave us and with the freedom he gave us to go ahead and make a decision, we made the best decision that we knew to make. And I have peace about that decision. We could have done it a thousand different ways, but in retrospect, because of how it all unfolded and because of our submission to God and our surrender to his purposes, I have a peace about it. So God wants us to, to live a life that really honors him and that gives us decisions that, that contribute to his wonderful plan for our life. I'll close with, with uh, five quick lessons that we can take away from this teaching this morning. Number one is that life is far too important to leave to trial and error. Please don't live that kind of a life. You will send your life spinning and waste years of your life when God wants to use those years for the expansion of his kingdom. The second thing is you need to be a person and I need to be a man who's ready to study, memorize, and obey God's word whatever it teaches me, whenever he teaches me. The third thing is make the best decisions you can using the biblical principles that I've laid out here for you in scripture. And the, second, the fourth thing is don't be in a rush. Wait for God's timing. You might have the right motive and you might even have the right plan, but if your timing is bad, you're gonna goof it up. And so we need to be, especially in our culture, those that are willing to wait until God makes his, his purposes clear. And the last thing is always, always, always give God veto power. Because what I can guarantee you is that as wonderful as your plan is, it's not as wonderful as God's plan. And so always give him veto power. Jeremiah 29, 11 says that I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So that's God's plan. It's worth waiting for. And I'll close with this, this uh, benediction of Paul in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within you. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God can do more than you can even imagine or hope or think. Don't let the process of decision making derail those purposes. 
Do it God's way. So in summary, who was the disciple? Who was the apostle? Well, we're not sure. I think it was the apostle Paul. And we'll see evidence of, more evidence of that as we study the book of Acts. But more importantly than that is God wants you to not live a life of trial and error. You just don't have enough life to live. You don't live long enough to live life that way. Because most of the decisions that we make that are important are only made once. And we have no opportunity to go back. This with his Holy Spirit and with power and with wisdom and with his own instruction manual so that you can get your decisions right the first time. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters and what a wonderful, hungry, eager group of people they are. I'm hungry. I'm eager. God, I want to follow you. We want to follow you. And Father, we don't want to live a life of trial and error, bumping along, making mistakes, goofing it up, damaging people around us, undermining your work. But God, we want to live a life that brings you glory and praise. So help us to live lives that are submitted to you and that bring you maximum glory and praise as we carefully and with integrity and with a heart for the Bible and your word and your will make decisions that bring you maximum glory and maximum praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.